The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals presents the timeless teaching of Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. See, sometimes we talk about the Christian life as though it had to do only with ethics. But Bible combines doctrine and ethics as two things which are inseparable. In his epistle to Timothy, Paul states that murder and lying are contrary to sound doctrine. And here in our passage in Galatians, he states that legalism is contrary to sound living. Over a half a century ago, the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse, then pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, saw the need to spread God's Word beyond the hearing of his local congregation. He started the weekly radio outreach, which has become known as Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible. The application of God's Word as taught by Dr. Barnhouse is as relevant today as when he first taught over the radio airwaves decades ago. The message we will be featuring on today's edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is entitled, The Apostle of Grace. As children growing up, we were praised and rewarded by our parents for good behavior, good marks on our report card, and doing our chores without being asked. At those times, our parents were proud, and we felt their love and approval. So does it make sense then to think that God loves us more when we are more obedient? Let's find out. The scripture text for this edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is Galatians chapter 2 and verses 9 through 16. Here again is Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse with the message entitled, The Apostle of Grace. Through the Lord Jesus Christ, we come unto thee, our Father and our God, and in the Holy Spirit. We want thy way and thy way alone, and we ask thee to speak to our hearts in this hour. Whatever the need that we have, wilt thou meet that need? There are those who listen in this hour who are ill, some in prison, some in cars driving along the road, some in the hustle and bustle of preparation for church service or for other things in life. We ask thee, O God, that whatever the need in this hour, that thou shalt give us quietness of heart to listen. And we ask it in the name and for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. In this third study in Galatians, we continue in chapter 2, beginning at verse 9. Last week, we learned that Paul received his gospel by direct revelation from Jesus Christ. And after a period of training in Arabia and of working in the backcountry districts, he visited the church at Jerusalem, where he met James, Peter, and John. And now in verse 9 of chapter 2, we read this. And when James, Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars perceived the grace that was given unto me, they gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, that we should go to the heathen, and they to the circumcision. Now the 15th chapter of Acts gives the story behind this verse. 
James was the presiding officer in the church council. Peter and John were leading brethren. At first, they seemed to be somewhat, SS. Now they seem to be pillars, SP. This is be the equivalent of DD, LLD, THD, and the other honors that come to men. And again, I say I'm not decrying education. I have some of these degrees myself, but what they give me is the right to say to men that education is of relatively no importance in comparison with that which comes to us by the Holy Spirit. Places of human leadership mean nothing. Peter was no vicar of Christ. These men saw the truth of the gospel as stated by Paul, and they went along with his teaching. If they had done this earlier, there would have been no place for the Judaizers. In the Acts, Peter said, God made distinction between us and them, but cleansed their hearts by faith. James, Peter, and John had only to shake hands and congratulate Paul on his missionary statesmanship. In verse 10, we continue, Only they would that we should remember the poor, the same which I was also forward to do. There's almost a humorous note here. Paul was visiting headquarters, and he had just had brought a glowing report of God's work among the Gentiles. Now we don't know who was in charge of the central treasury, but they asked Paul to see to it that the offerings should continue to be sent to headquarters. Now Paul did not reply that all the money was to be designated for spiritual uses. He understood the necessity for what might be called social service. Whenever the Holy Spirit is in control, there's a balance between correct doctrine and correct living. Everything is dependent upon grace alone, working in the heart through the Holy Spirit. Now it would appear that after the meeting, Paul asked Peter if he would like to travel a bit and see the gospel at work in the Gentile world. A missionary journey may transform the life of a true Christian. Peter decided to go. He had never been outside of Palestine except for the brief journey along the coast in the time of Jesus' ministry. What follows will be all the more startling after we recall an incident earlier in the life of Peter. In Acts 10, God ordered Peter to go to the house of Cornelius, a Gentile. Peter argued stubbornly with God. But when Gentile messengers from Cornelius found Peter in the house of Simon the Tanner, Peter invited these Gentiles to spend the night. Now there is nothing written in the Bible about the reaction of the Jewish host to Peter's act of desegregation. But it must not be forgotten that a Jewish tanner whose shop smelled as tanneries always do, would have considered his house more defiled by the presence of Roman soldiers than by the stench from his tanning vats. And here Peter acted as a believer should act, obeying God and giving no thought to possible offense to his host. But now in Antioch, many years later, we see another side of Peter. He had defended Gentile rights at the Council of Jerusalem. He had struck hands with Paul and given his approval to Paul's mission to the Gentiles. He was absolutely convinced of the doctrinal correctness of Paul's stand. But now watch him. I'm going to tell the story before I read the verses, because we're so accustomed to the smooth cadences of the Bible that sometimes we fail to understand all that it tells us. Peter arrived with Paul in the home of Gentiles, and he sat there in the parlor watching Gentile ways. He smelled food cooking and saw, let us say, a roast of pork on the table. 
So he had his first taste of pork. Not bad. Little by little, Peter put down his prejudices and began to live in all the liberty of a Gentile household. He was eating what was set before him and asking no questions for conscience sake. Then there came a knock at the door. It was a committee from Jerusalem to investigate conditions among Gentile Christians. Peter left by the back door through the alley. He stopped at the drugstore to get some chlorophyll to take the odor of pork from his breath and he returned by the front door to meet the committee. Oh, it's so nice for us Jews to greet you. We are glad to see you. Then Paul spoke up, Peter, I'm not going to let you get away with this. Now let's read this story as it is in the scripture, and we shall see that I have set forth a true picture. For in verse 11 we read, But when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face, because he was to be blamed. For before that certain came from James, he did eat ham with the Gentiles. But when they were come, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing them that were of the circumcision. And the other Jews dissembled likewise with him. That's the chlorophyll. Insomuch that Barnabas also was carried away with their dissimulation. Now this is not a pretty picture. Peter was acting the coward afraid of the disciples who were his denominational superiors. But even more, he was compromising the truth of the gospel. Oh, if there had been only a compromise about food, Paul would not have said anything. There are fields in which Christians may differ, and the 14th of Romans shows us that diet is one of them. But here, without question, Peter did not fully understand the implications of what he did. Paul enlightened by the Holy Spirit, saw that this was not merely an exhibition of Jewish snobbishness or an uncouth fisherman's lack of courtesy. Peter was rejecting the gospel of grace. As a matter of fact, this incident is the stone which the rationalists of the last century, and especially Bauer in Germany, used to support their theory that Paul's teaching contradicted with Peter's and was therefore different from Christ's, and that the gospel of Greece is a colossal fabrication. Now before we consider the tremendous dressing down which Peter received from Paul, let us note that Peter later acknowledged that Paul was right. In the second epistle of Peter, the great apostle wrote, So also our beloved brother Paul wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, speaking of this as he does in all his letters. There are some things in them hard to be understood, which the ignorant and the unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Oh, thank you, Peter. I like you for that. It takes a great man to say, I was wrong, dead wrong. Paul was right. He says some things that are over my head, but his wisdom comes from God and he is right. I'm glad that God put that in, that Peter confessed that he was ignorant, mistaken, and that he had to be corrected by Paul. Now this passage in the second chapter of Galatians, which treats of the great rebuke which Paul handed Peter, is one of the important key passages of the Bible. Peter had actually denied the sufficiency of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember the first time that Peter ever saw Christ? The miraculous draft of fishes had taken place. And Peter had fallen before Christ, crying, Depart from me, 
for I am a sinful man, O Lord. At that time, he was a circumcised, Sabbath-keeping, sacrifice-bringing Israelite, and none of that was enough. As time went on, he learned that he could not trust in himself, and he had been restored by Christ. At Pentecost, and again in the house of Cornelius, he had preached salvation by grace through faith alone. But now, under the pressure of the legalistic Jerusalem party, he segregates himself from those who have not been circumcised. It was as though he had said, the death of Christ is not enough after all. In effect, he was saying to every Gentile believer, stand back, I am holier than you are. You have only believed in Christ, but I have done something better. I have kept the law. Oh, there's nothing more hateful than this attitude when we understand what grace truly is. You will say that Peter would never have put his action into words. Neither would most present-day Christians put into words their belief that something besides the death of Christ is necessary to salvation. Yet many do so believe. The man who thinks that salvation can be lost after it has been possessed is in the same error as Peter. Is it any wonder that Paul so sternly rebuked Peter? And so in verse 14 we read, But when I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, If thou, being a Jew, livest after the manner of Gentiles, and not as do the Jews, why compellest thou the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? We who are Jews by nature, and not sinners of the Gentiles. See, sometimes we talk about the Christian life as though it had to do only with ethics. But Bible combines doctrine and ethics as two things which are inseparable. In his epistle to Timothy, Paul states that murder and lying are contrary to sound doctrine. And here in our passage in Galatians, he states that legalism is contrary to sound living. Peter's compromise was sin. By adding legalism to Christ's all-sufficient death, Peter was not walking uprightly according to the truth of the gospel. And likewise in our day, men who set up conditions for church membership, such as abstinence from certain forms of eating and drinking, or abstinence from certain amusements, are not walking uprightly according to the truth of the gospel. There have been many arguments among commentators as to how much of this chapter was spoken to Peter in the presence of the group at Antioch. I'm convinced, and I follow the majority of the commentators, both ancient and modern, that the rest of the second chapter is the summary of Paul's rebuke to Peter before the whole church. And let us look at it in that light. Paul first stated boldly what Peter had been doing. He was a Jew who had been living in full freedom as a Gentile and had abandoned the kosher rites of Judaism. Now, he hypocritically sought to give the Jerusalem committee the impression that he was a practicing legalist. And this dissimulation, this hypocrisy by Peter must have been a stunning blow to those who had followed him, for it showed that he was capable of putting on an act, that he was in fact a hypocrite. A modern incident has some similarity to this. 
a certain Christian leader was very, very loud in his arguments against the movies. One evening at a board meeting, he was speaking most piously about some matters in connection with missionary work when he came out with a punchline from a well-advertised movie which was playing in the city. A fellow board member who did not have the same compunctions picked up the line and said, Oh, I see that privately you go to the movies. The man was so flustered that he couldn't add a lie to his hypocrisy and was forced to admit it. Now, Peter's act, of course, was more serious than this, for Jewish legalism impugned the doctrine of justification, as we shall see. Paul joined himself to Peter and reminded him that although they were Israelites by birth, and not sinners of the Gentiles, even they had been justified by Christ. Now we go on to verse 16, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ, and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Yes, Peter knew very well that he had not been justified by the law of Moses, but Paul had to remind him of it. And this brings us to justification, which in one sense is the theme of the epistle to the Galatians, as well as of that to the Romans. After the doctrine of the sovereignty of God revealing himself in grace, perhaps the most wonderful truth of the Bible is that of justification by faith, apart from the works of the law the inner meaning of justification in the original languages has to do with the standard by which people or things are tested. It is the ruler that shows that a line is straight. It is the plummet that shows that a wall is perpendicular. Justification has to do with the rightness or the righteousness of a man. A man cannot be righteous by what he does. He is by nature a sinner, a child of wrath, he has no rightness in him. But God put the Lord Jesus Christ to death. And on the ground of that atoning work, God declares righteous those who put their trust in the Savior. Justification is the act of God, whereby he declares ungodly men to be perfect while they are still ungodly. And this because of Jesus Christ and his death. Oh, if you can remember and understand only one sentence out of all I say, let that be it. I'll repeat it. Justification is the act of God whereby he declares an ungodly man to be perfect while he is still ungodly, and this because of Jesus Christ and his death. Now, the marginal translation of this text gives us more insight into this great truth. We read in the margins of the translations, both that of the King James and the Revised Standard Versions, a man is not reckoned righteous by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even as we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be reckoned righteous by the faith of Christ, and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be reckoned righteous. Now there's so much in this word that it has caused many theological difficulties. Some have called Paul's idea a paradox, others a tension. But certainly there is no tension in a man who can write that the fruit of the Spirit is peace, gentleness, and other quiet qualities. And there's no paradox here either. 
Paul was not teaching merely that God looks upon a man as being righteous while he's still ungodly. For we must realize that Paul hated ungodliness in himself, as every believer must hate it. And even though he had been established by faith in a divine righteousness which satisfies God because it is his own righteousness, Paul knew that he must grow in practical righteousness. No one was ever saved by anything he did himself. No one was ever saved by keeping the commandments or by trying to live up to the Sermon on the Mount. But vast numbers of people have been lost through trying to do these things. Now this great truth of justification is the foundation of any intelligent understanding of the gospel. Yet multitudes take the attitude that they are still able to do something for themselves. If you think that you can get into heaven on the basis of something that you do, or of something that you do not do, then I declare with all the authority of the word of God, you must produce a holiness that is the equal of God's. Nothing less than this is acceptable to him. In the Old Testament, the law was given with a constant reiteration of the demand, Be ye holy, for I am holy. In the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord Jesus presented this standard again, Be ye therefore perfect, even as your heavenly Father is perfect. Never forget, there are only two ways for a man to get into heaven. One, you produce a holiness that is the equal of God's. Be as perfect as God. Then when you die, you can brush aside any guardian at the gate of heaven. You can stalk up to the throne of God and command him as an equal. Move over, God, and let me sit down on the throne. There are now two of us. Now, if you can't do this, and you know you can't, if you know that sin has come into your life, and you know it has, then the second way to heaven is open. You can come as a bankrupt sinner and throw yourself on the grace of God to be accepted because of Jesus Christ. This second way is the only way that succeeds. To think that the law was given as a standard by which we are to live is folly, folly, folly. The law was given as a sword to slay us in order that God may raise us from the dead by the gospel of free grace. We must get away from the idea that we're to do the best we can and that the Lord will make up what is lacking. Instead, Isaiah tells us, all, and note that word all, all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. And Paul echoes this when he says, there is none righteous, no, not one. For all have sinned and come short, mark the words come short, come short of the glory of God. Nevertheless, we can rejoice, for Paul tells us in the next verse that we are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Thank God. And our Father, we pray thee that thou shalt teach this lesson to each heart. Cleanse us from the desire of a do-it-yourself religion. Keep us from thinking that it is possible for us to do anything that could perfectly satisfy thy divine demands. Keep us humble, make us humble, and bring us to the place where we rest in Christ as we give thee the glory through him. Amen.
It's not what we do as believers which makes us right before God. It's what Christ did for us on the cross. If you would like to review today's message and additional teachings by the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse, you can hear these broadcasts anytime, anywhere around the globe via the Internet. The Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible Real Audio Internet website is accessible by visiting Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals online at www.alliancenet.org. Log on to this week's message entitled, The Apostle of Grace. An audio copy of today's teaching is also available by calling us toll-free, 1-800-488-1888. Today's message again is entitled, The Apostle of Grace. Or simply ask for message number Q107. We'd also like to make available to you a complimentary copy of Dr. Barnhouse's booklet entitled, Death Swallowed Up in Victory. In this four-chapter booklet, Dr. Barnhouse answers such questions as, What happens the moment you die? Where are the dead right now? Is there such a thing as soul sleep? These and many other questions on the subject of death are addressed with biblical insights. Ask for a free copy for yourself or to share with a friend who might be going through bereavement or struggling with the issues of death. Ask for your free copy of Death Swallowed Up in Victory when you call or write. You may also request a free catalog of all of Dr. Barnhouse's booklets and audio teachings. Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is a radio ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals headquartered in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals exists to promote a biblical understanding and worldview. Drawing upon the insights and wisdom of Reformed theologians from decades and even centuries gone by, We seek to provide contemporary Christian teaching materials which will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. If you would like more information on the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, or if you would like to support and further our work, contact us by writing Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, Box 2000, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 19103, or call toll-free. 1-800-488-1888 or visit us online at www.alliancenet.org Join us again next time for more classic teaching on Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible.